for reflection this afternoon, we turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These sayings of our Lord Jesus form part of what is popularly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount and the word Beatitude that is often used to describe this portion of scripture means blessed or happy. So that in these sayings, we have Jesus summarizing what it is that constitutes true happiness, true blessedness. In these eight sayings, we have at once a description of those who belong to the kingdom of God and the blessedness of their belonging to that kingdom and it's important to know that the Beatitudes, in the Beatitudes, we find not so much the means of going to heaven as we find the marks of those who are on their way to heaven. We do not have in this portion, the Beatitudes, a prescription as to how we enter heaven. In short, the Beatitudes identify, we would say, the fruits of righteousness that characterize true believers in Christ. They set forth the qualities, the character traits of those whose lives have come under the kingdom of God, of those whose lives have come under the rule and reign of God. They identify for us the fruit of repentance, which consists in transformation of heart and life. And we can say that based on the overall context of the book, the book is concerned, the book of Matthew is concerned largely with the theme of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, as we know, is the rule of God. And remember back in chapter 3 and verse 8, John the Baptist had challenged the people of his day, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He was preaching concerning the kingdom of God. And in his preaching of the kingdom of God, he told the people to bring forth fruits that are in keeping with repentance. And so this chapter, this portion, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, must be understood in that large framework of the kingdom of God and what the lives of those who are under the kingdom of God look like. The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, reflect what true repentance is all about, what true saving faith is all about, and this accords with the teaching of the Apostle James in James chapter 2, verses 17, 18, and 20, in which James states, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And so as we look at this passage and as we, perhaps we might look at it for a week or two, as we look at this portion, as we look at what it says concerning the characteristics of those whose lives are manifesting the reign of God, manifesting the kingdom of God, we need to ask ourselves how much of what we find here is true of my life? How much is true of your life? Now, the first three Beatitudes can be characterized, can be categorized under the virtue of humility. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the gentle or meek. All of those would come under the broad rubric of humility. Let's look at the first, verse 3, the poor in spirit. Our Lord Jesus says there, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that word poor, the Greek word that's used there for poor in this verse is the same word that's used in connection with the poverty of Lazarus in the parable of the rich man that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. It's a word that speaks of destitution, of rock-bottom poverty. It is the word that describes one whom we would say is dirt poor, rock-bottom poor, such that they have to beg. And Jesus is saying, happy are those who have this disposition of spirit because they, and that word they is emphatic in the Greek, which suggests they are the ones who will be recipients of the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit then are those who know in their hearts of hearts that they have nothing with which to commend themselves to God. They have absolutely nothing of merit, nothing of merit to grant them favor, to grant them acceptance with God, sensing their utter depravity, their utter poverty, their utter bankruptcy. They thus cast themselves on the sheer mercy and grace of God. No, the Bible is not calling us to hovel and have low self-esteem and be pathetic in our whole manner and our whole bearing. Because here's the truth, even what is known today as low self-esteem can be a manifestation of pride in which people call attention to themselves. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's speaking of persons in their relationship with God where they recognize that they, before a holy and righteous God, they are nothing, they have nothing with which to merit God's favor. In attitude then, they stand in stark contrast to the scribes and Pharisees who trusted in themselves. The word of God says that they were righteous and who made pretentious displays of their self-righteous deeds. Matthew 23, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 12, we see that in contrast to the Pharisee, this publican, as he was there in the temple, this tax collector, popularly regarded by the religious elites as being among the worst of sinners, the Bible tells us that he kept beating on his bosom, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He would not even look to heaven, but he kept beating on his breast, 
Lord, be merciful to me. And in our English Bible, some of our English Bible, it has be merciful to me, a sinner. But more precisely, there is a definite article, be merciful to me, the sinner. What he's suggesting there, as far as he was concerned, he was the sinner of sinners. My friends, that in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with the poor in spirit, suggests this, that foundational to all our dealings with God is an attitude of humility, is an attitude of brokenness before him. That if sinners would come to God, if sinners would come to God, if sinners would find favor with God, then they must come to him with an attitude of humility, with an attitude of brokenness, an attitude which says that they are nothing before God. They must approach him with a profound sense of utter destitution and bankruptcy before him. And humility, let me say, they should characterize us even though we are saved. Even the people of God need to be constantly humble before God. We can be overtaken with spiritual pride. Humility should characterize the whole tenor of our Christian life. We read in James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. <clears throat> the psalmist says in Psalm 34, verse 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. No, it is not a sense of defeat. It is not a sense of gloom. But it is the right thing, the right posture before God, because God promises to meet with such. Luke chapter 14, verse 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So our Lord Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount calls us, first of all, to an attitude of poverty of spirit. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize themselves as nothing before God. Blessed are those who recognize their utter bankruptcy and hence their need of total dependence on God. Now related to an attitude of humility, of being poor in spirit, comes the second attitude, the second beatitude, the second characteristic of those who belong to the kingdom of God. Verse 4, he says this, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, what is he not talking about? He's not talking about whining. He's not talking about people who go, go about complaining. Blessed are those who just keep on whining, keep on complaining. In Scripture, the acknowledgement and confession of sin, we notice, is often accompanied with mourning. And when Jesus, therefore, says here, blessed are those who mourn, he is, in context, referring to one's acute awareness of the gravity of sin, of what sin does in relation to God and in relation to oneself. One recognizes the heinousness of sin and hence one is led to grieve, to mourn over sin. Those who are citizens of the kingdom of God, Jesus teaches, will be acutely conscious of sin and will loathe it even to the point of mourning. This sensitivity to sin appears to be very much missing from much profession of Christianity in our time. The capacity, the ability to sense one's own sin and be grieved by one's sin, and even sin in the lives of others. In fact, one of the very things for which Paul rebuked the Corinthian Christians, you'll recall, one of the things for which he censored the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, was this, that rather than grieving over the sin of one of their fellow members, they were glorying in their tolerance with their sins. 
Paul says, here's this man living in open sin, and you're puffed up. Evidently, they were proud of the fact that they were tolerant and they were not judgmental. And Paul says, look, you need to put that man out. If he's failing to repent, you need to put him out. He says, deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying there, look, sin is an awful thing. You need to be grieving. This is not a time for pride. Beloved, brokenness over sin is something that you and I must endeavor by the grace of God, to never lose. It is good to have a tender heart. It is good to have a sensitive conscience when it comes to sin. In fact, one of the worst things that could happen to us is when we get to the place where we can tolerate the evil around us and without a twinge of conscience, we can even participate in the evil around us. We need to watch that. The minute we sense we're losing this sensitivity to sin, we should be greatly concerned. Why? Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, contextually mourn with respect to their sins and even the sins of others. Well, the question is, how desirable is such a disposition of grieving, of mourning towards sin? Here's what Paul says to the church in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10. He says, I now rejoice. This is Paul speaking, and he's speaking. What is he rejoicing about? He's not rejoicing in what some would consider to be some nice, positive thing happening. Here's what he's rejoicing in. He says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So it's a desirable thing to mourn over sin. God promises his blessing to those who mourn, to those who grieve, to those who feel the acuteness of sin, such that they are broken in spirit. Psalm 34, verses 17 and 18 says this, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord, verse 18, is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And we have in scripture examples of men, of people who knew what it was to mourn as Jesus calls us to hear in the Sermon on the Mount. We think of David in Psalm 51. David was in a backsliding condition. You remember after that affair with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. David had been living in sin for months up to almost a year. And then when he came face to face with his sins, Psalm 51 is reflecting on that experience. David there expresses heartfelt grief, heartfelt mourning before God. He says, have mercy on me, O God. And later on he talks about the blessedness of those who are contrite before God. As well, Daniel in his prayer, recorded in Daniel 9, 3-11, exemplified what it is to mourn in a God-honoring way. Here was a godly man. Here was a man who we could say exemplified what it was to be godly. And yet, Daniel in his prayer was actually mourning, mourning not just for his sins. Here was a godly man, but he was mourning for the sins of others, the sins of his people, the sin of his nation. Listen to his prayer. 
So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. There we have the tokens of mourning, sackcloth and ashes. When people mourn those days, they would put on sackcloth, which was, say, animal skins. Oftentimes, the skin of goats, they would put that on. That was not the most comfortable thing to wear. There would be heat, discomfort. But what the person did in donning sackcloth and putting on ashes, that person was saying, look, I forego all creature comforts. I forego all conveniences. Why? Because I'm in a state of grief and mourning with respect to sin. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, alas, speaks of what? Consternation. It speaks of grief. He says, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his command. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled. Further down, he says this, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. He's expressing grief. He's expressing brokenness. And then he repeats later down, open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Even though he was a godly man, even though he exemplified before his people what it meant to be holy, what it meant to be godly, Daniel, in the presence of God, recognized his own sin. He came face to face with the gravity of his own sins, and more so the gravity of his people. He was led to mourn. In verse 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, we find a third attitude of those who belong to the kingdom of God, a third attitude suggesting humility, and that is meekness. Blessed, we read in verse 5, are the meek, for they, and again the they is emphatic in the Greek, suggesting they are the ones who shall inherit the earth. This third description of kingdom citizens is cited in Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, as constituting the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and among those features, he says, gentleness. This virtue of meekness is often misunderstood. People often confuse it with weakness, but here's the truth. Meekness is not, is not weakness. Meekness is not spinelessness. Meekness is not somebody just acting what we would say supinely, throwing themselves, as it were, as a doormat. It is not timidity. It is not faint-heartedness. How do we know that? Because meekness was one of the graces of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if there is a person who could say he was never weak, it was the Lord Jesus. He was meek. Remember what he himself said, what he said of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle. I am meek and humble in heart. So whereas Jesus was meek and gentle, he was by no means weak. And we know he was not weak because remember what he did one day in the Gospel of John. The Word of God tells us how he made a whip of cords and he went into the temple and he began giving the people in the temple a first class spanking. Why? Because they were there in the temple selling, they were profiteering. And he says, take these things hence, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. That certainly is not a weak person. Meekness does not mean we go easy and do not let our voices be heard. It does not mean that we do not stand up for principles. It does not mean that we do not stand up for truth. It doesn't mean that we do not stand up for right, even our own rights. 
Nothing is necessarily wrong in seeking justice when we are wronged. We see Paul making use of the justice system in the book of Acts, where he appeals to Caesar, and we see how he sought legal defense. He did not just leave things up to chance. He took steps to protect himself legally, even as he trusted God. Meekness doesn't mean that we're not to stand up vigorously and passionately against sin and evil. Well, what is meekness? Meekness is best understood as submission. Meekness is, we would say, strength under control. In fact, the Greek word that's used there for meek was the word that was used for the breaking of a horse, a wild horse. And when that horse was broken, when that horse was properly trained, then that horse became tractable. That horse became, we would say, gentle meek. Think of what awesome power and strength a horse possesses. Even so, a wild horse, such power it has that it can overpower a rider, throwing the rider to the ground and even trampling upon the rider. And when that horse is broken, that horse follows submissively the directive of its rider, of its master, obeying every command. Meekness, we see, then, is strength under control. By meekness, one has the capacity, for example, to endure suffering even under provocation. By meekness, one is able to exercise self-control where one would otherwise just be impulsive. One is able to endure persecution rather than take the path of retaliation. That's what meekness is. And we have in scripture some fine examples of meekness. Moses, who, of whom it was said he was the meekest man in all the earth. And scripture illustrates how he was the meekest man in all the earth. Yes, apart from the Lord Jesus. He was the meekest in his time. How was that evidence? When his sister and his brother rose up against him, he went to God in prayer. When his sister was judged by God with leprosy, he pleaded for her. He could have settled in the, in the thought that, well, she really got what she deserved. God, I'll just let God deal with her. No, he pleaded with God for her healing. When Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rebelled against his leadership in Numbers chapter 16, he did not retaliate. Rather, he went to the Lord in prayer. When God would have destroyed the nation, promising him, Moses, that he would make of him a great nation, he would wipe out Israel, and he would start over afresh with Moses. Moses protested and said, Lord, you can't do this. Moses shunned the suggestion. Instead, he interceded on their behalf to God. Exodus 32, Numbers 14. Of course, our Lord Jesus was the greatest example of meekness. He was the greatest example of submission. We see his submission to his parents. He went down to Nazareth. He was subject to them. We see his submission in his obedience to God, even to the point of death, the word of God says in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. Though he was a king, he was born under humiliating circumstances. As we said, he submitted to his parents. He submitted to the baptism of John. John says, I need to be baptized by you and you are coming to me. I'm not even worthy to unloose the latchet of your shoe. And what did Jesus say? Allow it to be so, for thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. He was submissive to ordinances. He was submissive to his parents. He was submissive even to John's baptism. In his meekness, he refused to retaliate against his oppressors. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
And notice how he dealt with Peter taking up the sword against the servant of the high priest. In meekness, he rebuked Peter and he healed, he restored the man's ears. What is the promise to such? The word of God says, they shall inherit the earth. They are the ones, emphatic they, they are the ones who will inherit the earth. Indeed, meekness is a rare virtue of our time. Meekness is what we need. The Apostle James tells us as we close that we need meekness to receive, to hear the word of God. Because he says there, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. He says, wherefore, putting aside, James chapter 1, verse 21, all filthiness and overflowing of wickedness, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. We know we are not being meek then when we are not submissive to the word of God. For us to profit from the word of God, for us to hear the word of God profitably, we must have a heart of meekness. We must have a heart that suggests, Lord, I'm willing to learn. Teach me that which I do not know. Teach me what I do not understand. If we are to benefit spiritually, we must come before God with such posture.